All right, kia ora. How's it going? What's up, BBC Sunday Nights? It's good to see you guys here. Um, yeah, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Colin. I'm the pastor at Golden Sands Baptist. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. Uh, yeah, we've been going for about a year and a half now, and we're surviving. We haven't died, which is a success in my books. Um, but look, it's great to be here with you guys tonight, and it's a real honor to be able to close out this encounter series as you've been looking at these encounters with these angelic beings throughout the entire kind of testament of Scripture. Now, um, they asked me to come and do one specifically looking at angels in the book of Revelation, um, which should be exciting. Uh, we as a church, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. We've been preaching through it since May of this year. And I was like, oh, cool, which one? He's like, oh, just an angel passage. And I was like, nah, it's Revelation. There's like an angel in every single verse. Uh, so I can get to pick whichever one I want. Um, so I want to share with you arguably uh, one of the stories of one of the angels who delivers a message in Revelation. And it's my favorite, I think it's one of my favorite verses in the entire book, arguably one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Is that all right? Is that cool? Um, but before, de- before that, I am going to condense about nine months of teaching into two minutes. Does that sound good? Can you go with me on that? Um, so we're going to just jump in a little bit. This is our graphic for Revelation that we've been doing. This is the second half of it. Uh, so to know a little bit about Revelation, to understand the verse we're going to be looking at, you need to understand two main things. That's it, right? Nine months, two things. So the first thing you need to know is that Revelation is a style of book. It's a genre of book called apocalyptic. Now we all know what genres are, right? So when you read, there are different kinds of books. You've got like fantasy, history, sci-fi, Christian smut books, you know, like there's that whole selection of everything in there, right? And we know when we read a book, instinctively, when we read it, we pick up on the genre and we start reading it differently, right? So like, for example, you don't read the Lord of the Rings the same way you read the history of New Zealand, right? But if you were looking at it at face value, they're both stories. But intrinsically, we look at it and we know what to read it as. Or you don't read poetry the same way you read a cookbook, eh? Like you read them differently. And Revelation is a style of literature called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic was incredibly popular a long time ago. So from about 300 like BCE to 100 CE, that was kind of the time frame when lots of these books were written. So like, check it out. This is just a small selection of other apocalyptic books that we have no idea exist, but actually are part of what's called the pseudepigrapha. So you have like Enoch, for Ezra, Baruch. There's an apocalypse of Peter. There's an apocalypse of James. They're weird, all right? If you ever want to go like, it's like an LSD trip to read the Apocalypse of Peter. Jesus is turning kids into toys and women have to become men and birds appear out of nowhere. So like, it's crazy. But the, the style of apocalyptic literature, when we think of apocalypse, we think end of the world, right? But that word apocalypse, it just means unveiling. It means revealing. And so as a style of literature, apocalyptic literature uses crazy, supernatural, um, incredible images to try and pull back the curtain. Apocalypse is trying to say, look, you see the world this way. You see America, you see New Zealand, you see these kings, you see the world looks like this. Revelation's trying to say, let's pull back the curtain and see what's going on behind the scenes. Let's see how things really look like from God's perspective. What does the truth of life look like when we pull away all the stuff that we see to discover what's underneath? Does that make sense? So Revelation uses incredible imagery to help us see what's hiding underneath. So the other thing you need to know about uh, Revelation and apocalyptic literature is it uses satire. 
Um, you guys know what satire is, right? Like it's The Onion, it's Babylon Bee, it's stories where they don't mean what they say, they say what they mean. Does that make sense? So like they describe things in incredibly weird, crazy ways to make a point or to ridicule things. Now we're not used to that in the Bible. We're used to be like, if we pick up the Bible, we're like, every word is true, I must honor it in every sentence, right? But Revelation's trying to actually poke fun at things. It's using satire to make fun of these things. And one of the things that Revelation uses satire on a lot is it's poking fun at Rome, this massive empire that was the dominant world force when this book was written at about 90 AD. And so Revelation, you get that? So it's a style of literature and it uses satire. You understand those? All right, cool. We are going to do something that we do every week at Golden Sands, which is when we pick up on a bit of the scripture, rather than me just putting it up on a screen for you guys to look at, we listen to it together. Because Revelation is this apocalyptic book, it's, it's vivid, there's imagery, there's blood, there's gross, there's colors, there's angels. Like it's meant to be more than just like a sit there on my couch and read it. You wanna enter into it. So we're gonna listen to this verse today together. And what I want you to do is when you listen to it, for context, what's happening, we're looking at Revelation 18. It's right near the end of the book. And what's been happening is Revelation has been talking about the things that destroy the earth. And it's used this incredible imagery to describe it. It uses the imagery of a dragon to talk about Satan, this force of evil that's corrupting. It uses the language of the beast to talk about the Roman empire this huge dominant force that consumed everyone in front of them. It uses language of false prophet to talk about these local imperial cults, these local imperial religious spaces that drummed up support for the empire. And so what Revelation's been doing is been talking about how these horrible beings have been destroying the world, but now God is bringing freedom by destroying those who destroy the earth. And the verse we're coming up to here is called the fall of Babylon. It's the fall of this great city of Rome. Now, when it says Babylon, it think of the city of Rome. But to make it a little bit more lively, as we listen to it today, every time that you hear the word Babylon, I want you to replace it with your favorite empire. It can be any empire. It can be the American empire. It can be the British empire. It can be the Mongolian empire. I don't care. But anytime you hear Babylon, replace it with an empire. Does that sound good? Can you do that? You guys with me? We're gonna read, read some weird scripture together. It's Sunday nights, right? We can do it. It's not Sunday morning where all the boring people go. We can do the weird stuff, right? Right? Come on, it's Sunday nights. I'm with you. All right, so let's, let's listen to the scripture together and hear what it might say to us. Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. 
When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe! Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes any more. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city! dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. All right, how are we doing? It's so weird, isn't it? I know what you're thinking. You're like, that's your favorite verse of the Bible? Trust me, we'll, we'll get there. But just out of curiosity, what empires did you think of? I'm just doing a poll to see what are the most popular empires. Did anyone think of any empires in specific when it was said? U.S.? Anyone else? What else? Just shout it out. I England, yep, British Empire, yeah, yep, any others? Kardashians. Kardashians. <laughs> well, you're not wrong, although they're saved now, we're supposed to like them. Um, so, <laughs> it's, in my church, America was by far the most popular. Um, so what's happening here in this passage, right? So an angel shows up and delivers this message. And this is a common theme within Revelation, and I'm sure it's been common in all of the encounter series that you've been doing. Angels, really, they play this minor role in God's big story. And the angel comes here to announce that Babylon, the great city, the empire that has ruled the world, is falling. And what you see is people begin to react to that. And that's what I want us to look at, because it, there are three different people who mourned the loss of Babylon because she was beautiful. She was clothed in this beautiful purple linen. She had gold and jewels and pearls. She was gorgeous. And there were three groups who mourned her loss. 
And as we look at that, it'll help us to explain why this is such a significant text for us. So there are three woes, three people who mourn. The first one are the kings of the earth. So it says, when the kings of the earth who had committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, terrified at her torment. They will stand far off and cry, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Now, what's going on here? Is it talking about that literally all the kings of the earth went and had sex with the city? No, because that's weird and gross and makes us feel uncomfortable and we shouldn't talk about that in church. So what's Revelation saying, right? With, again, it's trying to pull back the curtains on things. So when it says like committed adultery with, they're saying what happens when the kings of the earth get into bed with political rulers, no matter the consequences. Um, Keister, one of the best commentators on Revelation, he says this, the writer uses the language of sexual immorality in order to critique the way kings enhance their own position through ties with the empire. The kings voice their grief, yet they stand at a safe distance out of fear for having to suffer the same way. The distance shows that their primary concern has always been self-preservation. What's wrong with Babylon? Babylon is terrifying because she corrupts all the rulers who come near her. People are willing to sacrifice their own city their own people in order to get a little bit of the wealth that might drip from her cup, right? So this is what's critiquing there. How relevant is that today? Like you could literally look around at pretty much any kingdom or empire and see the same dynamic going on. Um, If you'll permit me, anyone been following this whole saga? Uh, Most of you are like, please God, not another another Trump reference. I come to church to escape him. Um, If you're not familiar, uh, my president from America, where I'm from, is embroiled in an impeachment. He's being impeached by the Congress over an interaction with the president of Ukraine. Now, depending on where you get your media from, you'll hear two different stories. One group, uh, if you watch uh, kind of more established media, BBC, New Zealand News, or CNN, the story is that Trump withheld hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid from Ukraine because he wanted to pressure the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, to investigate his own political rival in America. Um, Joe Biden had a son who was working for a Ukrainian company, so Trump withholds the money so that he can dig up dirt on Joe Biden, which, if is true, is a pretty bad violation of your powers, eh? Like to use military money for your own political profit. If you listen to Fox News, the story's different. According to Fox News, um, Trump was withholding money from Ukraine because Ukraine had helped the Democrats in the 2016 election. Ukraine had tried to help Hillary Clinton win, and so there's a lot of corruption, so Trump was worried about giving the money to Ukraine because of the corruption that was there. Now, regardless of which side you believe, for Ukraine, the story's the same. It doesn't matter whether the Fox News story or the established media story is right. Ukraine has to do the same thing. Whoever's in power, Ukraine has to do whatever they say because Ukraine needs that military money. So if it's to investigate Trump's rival, Zelensky says, sure, I guess I'll investigate Hunter Biden. Um, Look, just don't withhold the $500 million that you're gonna promise that I could buy arms to fight Russia. And if it was to help the Democrats, it would have been the same thing while Obama was president. I'll give you all this money so that I can get um, the money I need to fight. It's this picture of the way Babylon corrupts. You're willing to sacrifice and sell out your own people in order to get just a taste of the wealth that comes from the empire. You see that? So the next group that mourn are the merchants, uh, the sellers, the business owners. 
And it says that they weep and they mourn. They say, woe to you, great city. You were beautiful and we had so much wealth, but in one hour you've been brought to ruin. Now, did you pick up on the amount of things? Did anyone think that was weird? How many things it listed? Like it's, it's so long. Like to write back then, 2000 years ago, paper was costly and time was money. And he spends so flipping long listing every single thing that exists. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon, spice, and everything nice and incense and myrrh and frankincense of wine and olive oil and fine flour. Can you feel it building? Like there's so much. It's this picture of nothing escapes the consumption of Rome and it keeps building and it keeps building horses and carriages until it hits the very peak pinnacle of consumption and slaves, the very souls of human beings. It's this picture of utter consumption. Rome was ready to consume everything the entire world had to offer. And that began to even rise up to humans. Rome had a bustling slave trade where conquered peoples from all over the world were shipped in via boats to fight in the Colosseums, to serve wealthy people, to carry them around in pagodas in the center. And Revelation's looking at this and being like, can you not see the corruption inherent within this? So again, uh, Keister on Revelation. Look, the text shows that the luxury of the few, the, the beauty that Rome has, the beauty of Babylon, it comes from the enslavement of many. By analogy, uh, the readers shouldn't be beguiled or like taken by the empire's promises of wealth. Instead, the readers must ask who has paid the cost for this. So Rome was this big consuming thing. Like it's giving you this picture of everything from all of the known world. They were harvesting all the resources to move towards this one point of consumption. And the thing was that first readers of Revelation, um, the churches in Laodicea and Ephesus, Man, Rome looked pretty beautiful. Like they had those flash aqueducts. They had really good linen. They had all the cool things. Rome itself was in a beautiful city. It was the eternal city. And if you're in a small backwater, backwater town like Smyrna, you look at Rome and you can't help but be like, man, that's the place we gotta be like. That's what the world should look like. But Revelation's trying to unveil that and be like, it looks beautiful, but what's the cost? At what cost does that come from? And how true is that for us today? I mean, I say that fully aware uh, that I'm standing here in Kmart jeans um, and I did this prep on an iPhone and a MacBook Pro, right? And my Kmart jeans were made by people in factories where they got paid next to nothing so I could have a cheap deal, right? Or our, our phones, you know, our phones, we feel like they're expensive, but when the iPhone 10 was released, they did a study to see how much would it cost for one of the makers, from one of the people in the factory who actually produces the phone, how long would it take them to work in order to be able to afford one iPhone 10? You know how long it would take them? 60 hours a week for six months, full-time work, to save up enough to buy one iPhone 10. What's the, the hidden cost, you know? Or even more so, uh, thinking about it, um, the iPhone 10, when it was released, it was incredibly pressured because it was a whole new redesign. And they did a study, uh, again, about these different factories and the working conditions, and they found that the pressure was so intense to meet the deadlines for us to have our phones, 16 people tried to commit suicide because of factory conditions. 
we got a good deal. Yay, Sunday nights. Um, what is the hidden cost? Man, I, I love Babylon. I don't really know to know what the hidden cost is. And then finally, it goes to the seafarers, the merchants who actually sailed the slaves on their ships to bring all of the goods to Rome. They mourn because they lost their business, their future. And um, there's not, don't need to go too deep into it, except for that when this was written, people who lived on boats, sailors, they were seen as crazy because their boats weren't super safe. Uh, they didn't have GPSs. Um, and they regularly died at sea. And there's a storm, they would just never come back. And so it was an incredibly risky lifestyle. So they were known as people who were willing to risk their life in order to get rich. The seafarers were basically those who would rather die, like, would rather die or be rich but they couldn't stay in poverty, so they would risk their life to get to the top, and they mourn because Babylon presented that offer to make it to the top, and flip, they wanted to be at the top, and they mourn because they no longer had that opportunity. It's this huge picture when it talks about Babylon, it's this picture of utter consumption, um, of self-centered, everything moves inward for your own pleasure and your own gain. Um, to finish this little bit off, there's a advisor named Seneca the Younger, he was an advisor to Nero. Uh, Nero was a Roman emperor who was alive just before Revelation was written. And Nero had a reputation of being the most lavish, corrupt, crazy emperor. Like he was known as the guy who slept with his mother-in-law and did all the weird kinky things in the empire that you didn't want to know about and was corrupt and might've burnt the city down. Like he was not great. Seneca, who was trying to advise him during this time, looked around at his Roman culture. And can I read you what he wrote? Because it is, it's worth reading at length because it is so fascinating, especially when you think about it today. Seneca, talking about Rome at the time, he says, we admire walls veneered with a thin layer of marble, but we know what defects the marble conceals. We cheat our own eyesight when we have these overlaid ceilings with gold, but what else is it but a lie in which we take such delight? For we know that beneath all the gilding, there's just some ugly wood. But nor is such superficial decoration spread merely over the walls and the ceilings. No, no, no. All the famous men who you see strutting about with their head in the air, they have nothing but gold leaf prosperity. Look beneath and you will know how much evil lies under those thin coating of titles. Behind it all is money. I say, which ever since it began to be regarded with respect, it has caused the ruin and the, of the true honor of things. We become alternately merchants and merchandise. We ask not what a thing truly is, but we ask, what does it cost? We'll fulfill our duties if it pays, or we'll neglect them if it pays. We'll follow an honorable course as long as it encourages our expectations, but we're ready to veer across to the opposite course if crooked conduct shall promise us more. Our parents have instilled into us a respect for gold and silver. In our early years, the craving has been implanted, settling deep within us and growing with our growth. Then too, this whole nation, though we are at odds on every other subject, we agree on this. When we wish to show gratitude as if it, this is what we dedicate to the gods, this is what we bestow upon our children as if this were the greatest of all of man's possessions, money, things. They say, call me a scoundrel, but only call me rich. 
Everyone asks me how great my riches are, but none asks whether my soul is good. No one asks the means or the source of my estate, but they just want to know how much it totals. All men are worth as much as what they own. And when I read that, man, I could see the parallels with today. I could see those parallels with our society. I could see those parallels in how we interact with one another. Babylon was a world where they commodified and they consumed everything. We live in a world where we commodify and we consume everything. There was a uh, pastor by the name of Jason Clark. Uh, He planted a church in South London with the Vineyard Movement. And uh, like any good church planner, he had this really cool alternative church. It didn't look and feel like a church because he didn't want people to be scared of it. And it did a lot of things really good. They had great preaching. They had great singing, but it didn't look like normal. They, they sat around tables. They did all the cool hip things. And uh, they had a lot of non-Christians come through. And he was really excited because he thought, man, God's going to really move here in London. But he found something happened is that people would come, but then they'd go, they'd go again. People would come, they would even have these incredible encounters with God. They'd be healed. They'd have words of knowledge. They'd be prayed for. Sometimes they'd fall over under the power of the spirit. They got like resources from the church. Some of them actually got financial resources to help them where he thought, surely this will open their eyes to the gospel of Jesus. But then he found they just shrugged their shoulders and left. And he realized what he was fighting against was a different sort of gospel not the gospel of Jesus, but the gospel of Babylon, a gospel of consumerism. He writes this, he said, consumerism, it's like a religion because it answers the question, what is the good life? And consumerism's answer is, it's living somewhere nice, living to a ripe old age, uh, having some certain experiences before we die, and it offers to save us with the worst fate of all human fates, boredom. And he found people didn't respond to Jesus because they had this other gospel that they carried around that they believed in more. Yep, your Jesus thing is cool, but I've got this other thing I'm trying to work on. And he he began to realize that this view of consumerism, this way of being, this Babylon-esque mode of being, it begins to affect all the ways that we live. It affects the way that we see the world when everything is a commodity to be bought and sold. If everything is a commodity to be used for our own good, what happens to us? What happens to your relationship with God when God becomes a commodity to be bought or sold or consumed? God becomes not this all-consuming being that we surrender our lives to. He becomes someone that helps us fulfill our passions or helps us feel better on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, he'll help us get a job if we pray to him. And if we're out at sea and we need someone to help, we'll certainly pray and he'll help us there. But then when we get back, we don't need to think about him anymore because we can put it back in our pocket like our phones and pull them out when we need him again, right? The um, Wilbur Reese, he has this amazing view, talking about this view of God. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like $3 worth of God, please. Jason struggled to build his church because we have this different version. If God is a $3 thing that we put into our pocket and carry around, it's no wonder we are utterly dissatisfied with him. 
It's no wonder that we come to church and we're like, oh, this is really boring. I don't get it. Oh, God seems really lame. But really lame? This is a faith that has sustained people for 2,000 years. It has shaped nations. It has turned the world upside down. And we think, yeah, I guess it's not for me. It didn't fit into my life very well. No wonder we don't love God. If we turn him into a commodity, he will always be dissatisfying. I promise you that. If faith is something that you use to augment your life, you will not love it. Faith is something you fold yourself into. You follow Jesus, not Jesus in your pocket, right? But it's not just faith, it's our relationships too. We begin to treat each other like commodities to be bought and to be sold. Every relationship has a use by date and every relationship needs to follow the rules of a commodity that's bought or sold. Andrew Pickard, who is a lecturer at Cary, he says, in a society of consumers, all ties and bonds have to follow the pattern of relationship between buyer and commodities bought. See, commodities are not expected to outstay their welcome and they must leave the stage of life once they start to clutter it up. And at the same time, buyers are neither expected nor willing to swear eternal loyalty to their purchases or grant them permanent rights of residence. Relationships of the consumerist type are from the start until further notice. When we live life in Babylon, every relationship becomes a commodity. And then we're always holding on to each other tenuously, ready to let go if they become a baggage. You've heard that phrase in the Twitter sphere and the blogosphere. You don't need that sort of negativity. Cut them out of your life. That's baggage. You don't need that kind of baggage in your life right now. Let them go. They'll sort themselves out and they'll come back when they're ready to be an augment to your life. You've heard that? When we treat our relationships as commodities, it is no wonder we feel lonely and isolated. It's no wonder we are struck with anxiety when we walk into public rooms because we're terrified to make those connections. We're terrified that they're gonna let us go, so we shut it down before we can get hurt. Or we're terrified to hold on to them because we don't know if they're gonna become a baggage or be weird in three months, and so we hold on to them loosely. Every relationship becomes a commodity, and so then we sit in our homes and we look at our phones because that's easier, isn't it? But man, we love Babylon. The promise of that freedom sounds good until you look at the reality it turns us into lonely, self-centered people, consumed with fear that we might turn into a commodity that was dropped, that we might end up on Trade Me. And then on top of that, it's not just God, it's not just our relationships, we ourselves in this consumeristic world, we become the commodities. If you don't believe me, just look at the language. Every YouTuber out there is about building your literal personal brand. You are a brand to be bought or sold now. We all know the Instagram influencers there. You can literally quantify your value with the amount of followers that you have. And I don't mean that figuratively. I literally mean the more followers you have, the more money you can make selling products. Your life is literally a commodity that you sell on Instagram in order to help companies make profit, which I don't, if some of you guys are making money off Instagram, good on you, work the system, do what you need to do. But, and I recognize in today's economy, like jobs are hard, it, life stinks, right? But, but take a step back and look what that does to your soul. Like it's great when you're working with money, but what happens when your follower accounts begins to drop? What happens when you begin to force content in order to keep the consumers of your media happy? 
when you have to keep dredging up stories, even your personal traumas now need to put on YouTube or Instagram in order to be authentic, to keep up your brand and your engagement with your users. You can no longer have a meltdown in private because you might literally lose your source of income. We have turned ourselves into commodities to be bought and sold in Babylon. Yet we love her because she promises us so much. Babylon looks beautiful. She's got the robes, she's got the linen. But this angel that comes to us and shares this message is trying to pull back the curtain for us today. And 2,000 years later, that message comes to us. And what is Revelation doing? It's waging war for our imagination, for the gospel that we follow, for the truth that we live our life according to. Because Babylon is all around us. It is the air that we breathe. It is the empire that we live in. And if we are not careful, it is the gospel that we follow. And then we come to church and hope that Jesus can just fit into that. But that is not how it works. The message that Revelation said halfway through was come out of Babylon, come out of her. Look behind the curtain to see what she is like and come out of her. We view the world in terms of commodities to be bought and sold, goods to have and to take, of people to be used or be used. And Revelation is saying, just let it go. You are not a commodity. Your value is not determined by the amount of people who like you or the amount of friendships you have or the amount of goods that you have or how quickly you're moving up the social ladder or how busy every one of your Friday nights is. That is not what your value is based on. It's calling us to a different sort of gospel, to imagine a different sort of world, not a world of commodities and goods to be bought and to be sold, but a a world of life, of truth, of Jesus, where the life of the gospel can bring flourishion to us. It's causing us to imagine what the world could be like, what communities could be like if we came out of Babylon. What could life look like for us if we left behind the call of Babylon of commodified goods? What communities could look like? A community of Jesus in a world of relativism, a community of forgiveness in a world of debtors, a community of satisfaction in a world of constant acquisition, a community of sacrifice in a world of never ending desire, a community of selflessness in a world filled with selfishness, A community of repentance in a world filled with quote-unquote sinlessness. A community of grace in a world of envy. A community of hope in a world of disillusionment and anxiety. A community of joy and thanksgiving in a world of entitlement. A community of justice in a world filled with economic injustice. A community for all in a world that favors some. A community of relationships in a world of individuals a community of substance and a world of superficiality, a community of God, a people of God, a family, a church. If I can invite the the team out, we're gonna bring this to a close. And as we finish this encounter series, I want to ask you the question that Revelation asks us. how much do you still love Babylon? How much does your world still revolve around Babylon? How much do we want to treat God like a good that we can put into our pocket and pull out when we're ready to use him and then put him back again? And are you ready to be utterly dissatisfied with that? Because Jesus is sitting here waiting. It's like we're playing in the mud and he's calling us to come out. There's another world on track. 
My biggest fear, honestly, like genuinely one of my biggest concerns planting a church out in Golden Sands is that we will basically have the same story of Jason. Um, we're gonna get out there and we're gonna try and do everything right. Yet we're not gonna go anywhere because there's another gospel that we love more. And I'm deeply concerned, can I talk to people of our generation, the call of Babylon for us is particularly strong. It is so strong. We are plagued with anxiety and Babylon promises us safety with offering us nothing. And so it's so easy to fit into that system saying, yep, I'll look on my phone. Yep, I'll live that way. Yep, I'll treat that person that way. Yeah, I don't need to read. I'll just go do that thing. Like my biggest concern is that in 20 years, we as a generation will have built nothing for the one following after us because we will have spent our life following after Babylon and the promises that she brings. I think the hope for us as a community, the hope for us as a church in a world of church decline where all of our stats are going down, the hope for us is to walk away from Babylon, lay it all down and rediscover the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rediscover what sacrifice looks like. Rediscover what loving our enemies looks like. Rediscover what radical generosity looks like in a world of constant consumption. To reimagine what hospitality could look like when we are terrified in social situations. That's on offer to us. Jesus says, come and follow me. Leave Babylon and experience the freedom of Jerusalem, this new kingdom that I am bringing. So can, can we stand um, together? And I, I want us to just have a moment to kind of respond. Because I want God to light a fire in us to stop being so satisfied with such crappy things. I want us to be just light a fire under our butts so that we begin to care deeply about God and his presence amongst us as a community. To stop playing games, coming in on Sunday nights, hoping that we're gonna get the message that'll help us feel better on Monday and then forget about it on Tuesday, then do all the dumb things on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, then repeat the cycle on Sunday. Like, come on, there's more for us. Particularly for those of us of our generation, we have an opportunity to radically reshape what the church looks like if we will but get off our butts and try. And so I want to put the call to you, are you ready to leave Babylon? Because <laughs> Jesus is calling. There's another life that he wants to bring, another hope, another kingdom. And so I want us to just pause and wait on his spirit a few minutes and see what he might speak to us. If I can encourage you to just kind of open up your heart to God that he might speak to you tonight. Um, Jesus, as we read these words from Revelation and we hear the message that this angel brings, God, I am so incredibly aware of how much I still love Babylon. I do, I, I love the safety that she promises me. Um, I love the things that I can get from her. I love how easy life seems to be when I live according to her plan. And sometimes Jesus, your call towards sacrifice and risk to follow you out into the waters where we haven't been, sometimes that feels like too much. And so I retreat to Babylon because she's what I know. Lord, if we still love Babylon, God, would you speak to us now? Would you show us ways that we are living in her? ways that our hearts are still tied to this way of consuming and commodifying all the things around us. 
Jesus, if we have treated, like, treated you like a commodity, would you speak to us? Would you raise that in us? And would you bring forgiveness now? Jesus, help us to rediscover that you are more than enough and that our life with you requires us leaving and following you, not you fitting into our pockets. Help us to rediscover you, Jesus. Jesus, if we are guilty of treating the people around us like commodities, like goods to be used and then discarded, would you speak to us about that now? If there are relationships that we have mistreated because of our selfishness, I pray that you would speak to us about that now. Lord, for what we have done, we are truly sorry. Spirit, help to remind us that real life comes from deep committed relationships where we love one another in spite of our flaws and our differences. And Jesus, if we have based our own self-worth on Babylon, if we have turned ourselves into commodities, if we spend our days fighting back the anxiety of wondering how much we are worth, Jesus, would you speak to us today? God, I thank you that although the world seems to tell us we've got to be pretty enough and successful enough in order to be valued, I thank you that that's not true. I thank you that our value is based on your love for us. And there is nothing more that we can do to earn that. And there is nothing we can do to lose that. There is nothing we can do to add one more ounce of value to ourselves. Jesus, you have made us enough because you love us. Help us to remember that we are your beloved. And now God, I pray that you would light a fire under us as we move into the summer, as we move into the months where things get all flexy and we go on holidays and we do all these things. Lord, would you light a fire in us that does not leave us the same? God, I pray that you would turn us into a generation of people, a community of people that are willing to walk out of Babylon, to walk into the unknown of exile and find you in the wilderness, Jesus. To rediscover you in sacrifice, in prayer, in fasting, in meditation, and all the things that seem so hard to us right now. Lead us on that path that we might hear your voice again, Jesus. And burn within us that we will become utterly dissatisfied with the gospel that Babylon preaches and help us to rediscover the power of your gospel, Jesus, that is bringing light and life to all things. In your name I pray, amen.